Hello and welcome to another episode of that 60s recording podcast, the podcast that has conversations inspired by the golden era of recording. Today's episode is with a producer and engineer who has a studio in Ireland called Analog Catalog. Her name is Julie McLaren. Um, and I've been particularly keen to speak to her because she's worked with some artists that I'm a fan of, but also because um, w- of her commitment to analog recording, uh, there's not a screen in sight. Um, and also she's had a very interesting um, sort of start to her career, if you like, where she studied um, went to college, but then very quickly got a job at a studio and almost had a, an apprenticeship, which is not something you see too often these days. Um, and uh, that kind of, you know, a lot of engineers who are working now uh, sort of just happened upon doing this or learned through experience, you know, just sort of bumbling forward. Whereas Julie's had a very kind of um, traditional uh, background in engineering. And I that's something that particularly interests me. Um You'll find she. Uh, you'll find in the episode she attended the uh, the George Martin recording course uh, in Salford, um, and worked at a lot of quite well known studios up in the north before finally finding her studio um, that she's currently operating operating out of. Um, so yeah, it's been a really really interesting episode. A lot of um, got quite a philosophical outlook, um, but all based in science. Um, less of a wishy washy. It's very much of a. Um, kind of focused um experience driven but going with uh how do you explain it you know there's not a correct way to do anything but there's a a, a scientific way of working out what the best way of things to do is and that tends to have a slightly philosophical approach as well i'm i'm not explaining myself very well but you'll have to listen to the episode and it's uh it's just fantastic i absolutely love it um, and we begin by talking about uh, her early childhood and a particular experience that she went through that helped shape her uh, ears and mentality towards recording. So we're going to dive right in. Julie McLaren of Analog Catalog. To start off with, perhaps you could talk about your studio now and um, like where it is physically kind of what it is and and um and then we we can go back and sort of talk about your journey up until that point um okay yeah it's analog catalog is now in um about five and a bit acres of of um land and old old buildings in um the actual studio itself is in an old stone flax mill uh, in the mountains of Morn, which is an hour from Belfast, an hour from Dublin. It's kind of Game of Thrones filming land. Um, <laughs> and it's beautiful. Uh, it wasn't originally there. It was originally built. My control room was was built in Manchester um, by some brilliant studio joiners, one of, of which has, has since passed. And so I definitely wasn't walking away from that beautiful control room because it was a flat room and I knew it. Um, so when I happened upon this building, um, my family roots are from here. I happened to be in the area and I happened to see this building going for auction. And um, I, I came in, uh, it was empty. So I let myself in through an open open stable door Amazing. and measured up. And the distance between the two stone walls was, was the same distance as my control room back in Manchester. So I decided that that was meant to be because that's Absolutely, the sort yeah. of 
nut job that I am. And um, <laughs> threw a cheeky offer, um, much, much below um, the, the um, asking price for it and got told, don't be stupid. And then four months later, they rang me and said, is that offer still on the table? And I went, wow. uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, without even really thinking. And uh, that was when the hard work began. I had to... Um, <laughs> get the remaining carpenter back in to help um, dismantle the control room and take three containers full of gear uh, on the boats across um, to, to Sunny Island and oh, build wow. Analog Catalog 2.0, um, <laughs> which is, is up and running now. And, um, you know, and so it's all, I'll not have to do that again in this lifetime. So that's that. Was that, was that fairly recently, last few years then? 2013, I saw this building and 2015 we opened. So I spent 2014 building. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. That's, that's really <laughs> And by cool. 2017, we were winning awards. So it was... <laughs> Amazing. How, how do you it find was, the, um, the stone walls? Do, do they make? I, I spoke to somebody recently in Australia who has a similar sort of space. It sounds like a farm, a farm sort of space, and he yeah. was talking about stone walls and and how he likes the the sort of um, the density of them and that it sort of impacts the the sound of of sound. Yeah. yeah, sound is all about absorb and disperse. Absorb and disperse. That's all it is. You know, that's what I have to think about all the time. Is you need to just break it up or suck it up. Um, so when you see stone and it's all original granite blocks, no two surfaces the same. Now, the where the stone is, none of it's naked. It's all behind. Um, it's a room within a room. Um, but the treatments that are in front of it are the absorb. And then anything that makes it through the absorb is dispersed. Mm -hmm. So job done. And um, though it's a 10 metre long live room that I'm sat in now, I'm sat in a 10 metre long live room with massive oh, wow. cathedral ceilings <laughs> and it sucks, it sucks and breaks. So it's a one pass system. Um, you hit a snare at one end of the room and the, the, the noise will travel to the other end of the room, but it will not slap and return. So it makes accurate miking possible. Um, so, I, you know, that was... Having worked in professional studios, and I'm lucky, I, you know, I, I went straight in at Strawberry Studios at 17. And even prior to that, from 16, I was taught by Bill Leader, who's an absolute legend. Yeah. Um, so I, I'd worked in Strawberry, which was 10cc's place and was a Westlake Eastlake design. And it had natural stone in it. It had shagpile carpets. It had mirrors at angles. Um, and I'd studied acoustics. So... Um, I was all about the rooms, like literally throw me four SM58s and I'll still make a record yeah. um, as long as I, I can work the space. Um, so it was all about the rooms, um, which is the way studios used to be, you know, like Sound City, like Abbey Road, like all of them, you know, all the, all the, the, the legendary ones. It was about, it didn't matter if you just went in there with a couple of 50 pound mics, it's the room that was singing. I suppose um, it's almost got lost with the uh, the sort of when everything got dead, basically. And then, and you know, as a, a sort of young person growing up, I was going into just dead studios, essentially. And that's, I yeah. never even 
crossed my mind that a room would sound nice until you start hearing people talking about, oh, that's a nice sounding room. And you kind of think, well, what's that? <laughs> um, <laughs> now I, I, I'm hearing through, you know, through this podcast and speaking to people like you, this does seem to be more attention being brought to light about this and you know yeah. the, the more old books or the more books I read from of engineers from back then it was a huge part of it and they're, they're basically saying exactly what you're saying um yeah. which would make sense because you've learned in almost quite a formal in a formal way working in professional studios and and going through that rather than um <clears throat> rather than sort of having to I suppose you would have done trial and error as well but um not having to just sort of go oh everything just needs to be dead and then someone yeah no I was I was I was super lucky I was guided you know all the time I mean I was I was assisting Chris Nagel Martin Hannett um you know Brian Eno like those so I I got to watch people place microphones um for years and years and years and I suppose being a female had and not being a particularly you know, in your face kind of person. It took me probably until well into my thirties to sort of go, I can, I can do this, mm-hmm. um, and and have people, um, you know, saying very very good things about the records that I was making before I actually even asked to be credited as a producer on anything. <laughs> you know, I'd just be like, yeah, I can record. I can probably record better than a lot of boys. Like, <laughs> just let me do it. <laughs> was it a case of when um, you started? doing uh you know producing and engineering records yourself it was you were you you kind of surprised at how much you'd learned by observing for that long i think you know when you when that's what you've grown up with you don't you know you don't you don't wrap your head around what other people it's not until you're, you're in a position where you're seeing people that are maybe older than you or, or should know more and they're just doing stuff that you think that's not that's not right that's not you know that's that's good that's out of phase that's not going to work you know um and I realized that um when you have grown up in that professional environment you're taught for a reason the reason that you're taught is because time is money and you can't get it wrong. You know, when you are in your bedroom environment or you're in a demo environment, um, then you've got time. You're working, you know, in a less pressure environment um, where the reason that they would train at Abbey Road or they would train at Trident or they would train in Strawberry was because you had to get it right first time. You had to look at a cello, you know, throw your ear around it, know exactly where to place the mics and move on to the next instrument. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't spend half an hour walking around you know trying various things or even an hour trying various things you have to get a great drum sound in 40 minutes max yes. you know uh, yes, yeah. not three weeks <laughs> <laughs> so i mean you mentioned about um miking I, I mean i was going to ask right in the deep end uh you know what is a what's your what are you looking for i mean obviously now you might be working on sort of experience but if you were just going on purely ears, which I suppose you probably do as well, what what are you looking for? Or what are you listening for when you're, you know, looking at miking up an instrument for the first time? So maybe something either unusual or even just something quite standard. Um, you know, how what's your approach to the sort of um, steps that you take when you go to mic something up? Um, looking for what beauty it's putting out and where that beauty is landing. So, um, for instance, your, any wooden instrument, so violin, 
uh, this is the same for an acoustic guitar as well. I'll, I will get down uh, with a guitar, I'll get down on my knees and crawl around the, the, the guitarist. If it's a violin, I'll walk around, um, making them feel highly uncomfortable, also <laughs> kind of like sniffing the back of the neck. Um, because the better the instrument, the more likely that it'll be putting out a lot of beauty out the back because it'll be if it's a good quality instrument it'll have had just as good wood used in the rear of the instrument as in the front and so I'll multi-mic all the time I'll always multi-mic but often the 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 reason I'm getting that sweetness is because I'm micing around the back as well as around the front and in micing around the back um, and finding the sweet resonance around the back, I can then blend around the back and around the front in. So if like on a on a bowed instrument, if you're only operating around the front, you're going to get a lot of the scrape of the bow and that's going to determine then your compressors, what's that going to do to that? You know, your compressor is going to be picking that up and throwing it all over the place. And um, so if you can blend onto two channels, the, the sweetness, but without the scrape from around the back, and then... Um, and then take some of the elements, say, hey, it's a violin, take some of around the front, then blend those two together and then throw the compressor over, the, throw those down to one track of tape, throw the compressor over that. You've got way more control over the overall sound. And so, you know, then people will pull up your multi-track stems, everyone else will call them because they'll be stems, but to me it'll be tape multi-track. Um, and, one, and go, what mic did you use? There might be four mics on that one track of violin that have been in various points um, and four sets of EQs and four would be quite over the top. It might be a solo violin, be not, but there'll be at least two and mm -hmm. um, possibly three. Um, and, you know, four sets of EQs and four sets of maybe limiters and things that you, we used and then just put down to one track. So there's no one magic mic that would do that job but that gives you a, an overall, it's like, I, I sort of describe it as like filming something using three cameras. So you really, you really get, the, the listener really feels like they're in the room and they're in various parts of the room with this guy or girl. Um, and they can really have a deep understanding of that sonic because they're not just getting a, a, you know, a 2D picture from one position. Yeah, three three dimensional it is exactly what I was about to say. That sounds to me <laughs> that you're you're sort of making a three dimensional picture, and and uh, that was one of the uh, first pieces of advice that resonated with me when when I started to do things was thinking of microphones like a camera, and it was nice to hear you say it because it it makes the it makes the whole what you picture a microphone doing a lot clearer in my in my mind's eye, and uh, what you're talking about makes lots of sense because I suppose with particularly acoustic instruments, the resonance is coming from a lot of the back and the um, sort of a, I mean, if, you know, with a woodwind instrument, key noises or string noises are coming from the front, whereas it does make sense. Uh -huh. and, and also, um, if like, if you're talking about um, a stringed instrument, an F-hold instrument, um, a cello, violin or whatever, it is throwing out, or double bass especially, um, it is throwing out, it, a, a big lump out of that f hole um and if you just pick up your mic and throw it straight into as i call it the eye of the storm <laughs> then you are going to get a lot of volume but it's not going to be a true picture of what you would hear if you were in the room with that 
and the, also that that in, that that uh, player is gonna think that's not what I hear when I'm playing this instrument. Um, so if you want to 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 capture it as it as you would hear it as a listener in the room or as the player would would hear it, you need to not do that. You need to not go straight with a mic straight into the eye of the storm. Like you know, look at the eye of the storm, work out where it is, work out where what it's hitting, and maybe take a slice of it but with some other stuff um, and then, you know, take some other slices from around and about the place um, that's sounding, they're sounding nice. And, and you just, I crawl around with my ear all the time, you know? <laughs> um, and sometimes I've got a mic on a double bass that is literally half an inch off the floor um, <laughs> and a good few feet away from the instrument because it's throwing out of the echo and I'm like I'll just take that little floor reflection there that's nice um, yeah. so I'm just looking I'm using my ear like a cameraman would use their eye to to look for pretty things I'm just looking for pretty sounds with my ear and then placing placing um, something to capture it I'm placing the right thing as well you know, using the right mic. I don't know if you've ever read, um, it was summarised beautifully in that Mixing With Your Mind book, about which I already did. I already split my mics into creamy and crispy. Mm. But, you know, you have the creamy and crispy thing. It's like, and with wood instruments, it would be the same. If you're, if you're, you, you're using, you know, you need to capture some crisp from somewhere, but you need to also make sure you've got plenty of cream. And then if you don't know what else is coming, then you you won't bang them both together onto one track. Now, most 99% of your listeners won't be working to tape, so they, um, they'll they definitely not be bouncing several things and making those choices immediately. <laughs> well, I, th I think that's an interesting point because, I, I mean, how perhaps if you know if you're producing something and sending it off to be mixed by somebody else how um how are you approaching the the amount of condensing that you're doing um in terms of of that are you just sort of getting the a right sound or i mean i i, I suppose I've, to frame the question better from my point of view when, when i'm you know I, I record drums for people so when i i send I condense some mics and I send them those as as my preferred option, but then I will send them all individual mics too. And I love the idea of of um or you know bouncing it down to to I don't know a stereo drum mix or even four mics or four you know uh, four tracks of here's a mix that I particularly like. Uh, how conscious well, are you of of the other end? Basically, is kind of what I'm asking. I, I have to session plan. It's all decided for me because I'm only working to twenty four track um so i i have session planned from the start in pre-pro i've session planned who's getting what you know in pre-pro i will ask how many overdubs are there are the backing vocals are the percussion is that you know and what and and assigned who's getting what track um right right early on so i you know if there's loads of overdubs we're not having a 10 mic drum kit we're having four <laughs> mic drum kit yeah. so i give them what i can afford to give them um, and and that will that will decide um it will influence the sound as well like you know you will if, if somebody because you then have to make a decision of like it is possible to to do a 10 mic drum kit and loads of overdubs but you will have to then start bouncing down which means you're going to need 
longer. You're going to need to throw the band out. You need to gonna do submixes and you're going to have to bounce that down to four. Um, and that's going to have to be decided. And you've got to then explain to them that's not, un- you know, you can't undo that. And now we're going to go over the original 10. And that would have been the way, even when I was coming through, you know, it, it, that would have been totally acceptable. And, and, and in the world of analogue, people would have been right. Yep, this is our mix now. Let's go over those other tracks, the mics. Um, in this day and age, they look horrified at you if you said, I'm, I'm going to go over the snare drum mics now. You're never going to see them again. <laughs> so they'd be absolutely horrified. So I tend to just operate within my um within my 24 tracks so i'll i'll have a look at the the style of of music and i will plan out my drum sounds and my other sounds around that is there a obviously if bands come and work with you it's based on you know your experience and reputation and also the, they know what they're coming to you for but do, is there any explanation perhaps potentially with you know more like inexperienced bands about that do you have to do you have to talk to them about what the limitations are and and what are their responses a little bit um i mean my clientele do tend to be you know uh, a bit more experienced and um i don't get many young young bands um that haven't that didn't know what they were signing up for um (laughs) But uh, a, a, a little bit, I, I'm still always mesmerised that even though they know it's going to tape and stuff, that they they still don't. This just doesn't. The penny hasn't dropped. Like this, <laughs> they'll still. Uh, and the and it's a a Trident Series 80 with no automation, and nearly every band will still say, "Could you just pull up that last mix and just push that one thing?" And I'm like. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's changing a reel and doing like four hours to get back to that last song's mix. Like, you know, that just isn't, it isn't a push of a button, but they just can't wrap their head around that at all. <laughs> it's, um, it is really interesting because it's a complete, it is complete opposite way to, to the most of the way that, I mean, I mean, I grew up working, so I, I find that quite exciting. Um, I want to, Oh, there's so much I want to ask you about. I'm trying to work out the best the best way to approach things. I mean, you mentioned your Trident desk. That was a that must have been a pretty special moment when you bought that desk. Yeah, yeah. It was a bit like buying this building as well. It was just <laughs> one of those phone calls. Mark from Funky Junk and like we go back a long a long way because I remember like when he first started. Um, I was kind of buying in gear for the winding studios in the early 90s and stuff. So like I'd known Mark for a long, long, long time. And he knew I was after a Trident Series 80. And um, I got the phone call of like, I am going to, I'm showing this, but you know, I'm going to Camden to pull this out of Utopia. I've not seen it yet, but I know the desk. This is what it is. Um, Do you want it? And I was like, yeah okay <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah I'll just put it on my credit cards and I'll worry about it I'm like literally reading out five credit card numbers a couple of grand on that one a couple of grand on that one oh, yeah. like just maxing them all out and then went and got a proper loan like a couple of weeks later to consolidate it all before the bills came in but oh, yeah wow. it was just a 
yeah, don't let anyone else have it. It's mine. You know, David Bowie had worked on it and Roxy Music and Duran Duran, like, just don't even think about ringing anyone else. It's sold. <laughs> That's crazy. I mean, I remember reading, um, you know, whilst researching for this, you're talking about like T-Rex and and those records that you sort of grew up listening to. And that's, yeah. lots of those records were made on these desks. It's, it's that, it's a, it, like it's serendipitous kind of like, like you were saying about the building that you found. It's sort of like it was meant to be. Indeed. <laughs> and uh, just yesterday, a crackle came on the, um, on the main, I mean, it's all modular and it's all made by like Malcolm Toff. So it's made like with proper sized hands. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so like I had, I had the master module out yesterday and I was like, looking at it and sort of like I fixed it the little thing that was that got in there um but you know I'm, I'm looking at it going oh this is made in 1978 by real hands in China <laughs> <laughs> just giving it a little sniff <laughs> oh I love it I, I had a I spoke to Malcolm last year for, for the podcast and he's a he's such a lovely chap and I, I do love that idea I mean I've actually going off on a tangent here but this morning I uh got a an Alice eight two eight little console um that used to belong to a drummer back from the sixties called Bobby Graham and it very, very similar. I took it, I opened it out because it needs a heck of a lot of cleaning doing to it. And I was just inspecting it. And it there's a you know handwriting on the back of it. It says um July twenty first, nineteen eighty three and someone's <laughs> signature. I just loved the idea that all of it was soldered by somebody in um where well where was it now Windsor and it's just really yeah. cool all of that stuff is yeah. really cool there's always like little handwritten notes in 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 telling you the channel numbers all just written in tiny sharpie and stuff You're <laughs> like oh you don't get this with Beringer no <laughs> no you don't it must feel quite special when you're making records not only as your specific console made some amazing records before you started making amazing records with it but it just that knowing that that's a sound that you are so familiar with and that you're quite you know it's all it's your wheelhouse you're really comfortable there and now yeah. you've ended up recording on a console that you're super comfortable with everything it, it's it can sort of do really it must be quite a a nice familiar feeling for you oh absolutely i was laughing on the session that i had to push last week because um luckily they they, they need they they need it done quicker because they're on a good trajectory they need it sooner so I was working with my backside off on that last week and um, one of the girls it's a girl band and one of the girls said my friend said it sounded a bit like David Bowie <laughs> <laughs> said, and they, they're not they didn't set out to sound like that and I was like well every record I'm just setting out to make hunky dory so like I just don't <laughs> tell the client that but that's what they're getting they came for something else but that's what they're getting yeah ev everyone leaves with hunky dory whether they like it or not <laughs> love it I I'm I'm really interested to go back to sort of your your journey up I mean there's you, you speak in your biographies a lot about this a period of time that you spent in hospital listening a lot and how that gave you a good uh sort of almost trained your ear inadvertently um to to mm. what you're doing now how how you know what was that period like for you listening a lot and and what were you aware of in terms of what were you thinking about when you were listening were you thinking i, I love the sound of these records or were you just enjoying the music or what you know if you could talk through sort of that period of your life 
Um, well, that period of my life was from I was like five and a half till I was 12. Wow. Um, so it's when you're supposed to be in primary school <laughs> and it's when you, you, your brain's a complete sponge and you just want to know everything and you want, you know, it's, it's when your, your little fingers are in everything and you want to know everything. And I was basically starved of information because I was in hospital and I, I had no books. There wasn't even television. Um, so I only had... Um, I certainly before children, it was like in the 1976 to like 1982 or something. Um, and it was, there was, there was no, there was nothing to look at. Um, and a lot of the time I was on my own and I just had the radio. So I had nothing else that I could do apart from listen to the radio. And after, you know, after hearing a song for the umpteenth time, you start just having to look for more and more and more things in it. And then I just realized that by the time I was finally released, I could, I, 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 and I looked at the backs of records, I did, I could name which studio, which engineer had made records before, before anyone told me, like, I was like, Oh, that was definitely Dunnett's right. That's a Visconti. Oh, that's definitely, you know, that's a, that's a stock aching and waterman there. You can tell like before they'd (laughs) even say, who who did that you know on the radio who it was but I'd, I'd analyzed everything so that I think at the time I was about 13 I could tell you an SSL from a knee from a <laughs> and just became kind of you know autistically obsessed with <laughs> consoles and gear and so the first thing I did when I was um kind of able to, to to do stuff was I was obviously playing synths and playing um guitar and got myself a Maplin account and started just soldering things and breaking all the things in the house and and circuit bending them before that was a thing <laughs> um so you know I I just became obsessed with that and then the next my life just turned into that I went straight out of school. <laughs> a few bits of school that I did do, two or three years. My children, I'm always like, would you go to school? It's really important. And they just roll their eyes and go, you didn't. <laughs> and you're fine. <laughs> Isn't do as I say, not as I do. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> so, so. I think that that's potentially something that is difficult. Again, I mean, not to, to rubbish everything that's happening now, but you you tend not to listen to a lot of things over and over and over again. And that's something that people's attention spans certainly either they are shorter or they're judged to be shorter by the sort of media that is put in front of them. I don't think, I think I wouldn't, I wouldn't wish what happened to me on anybody, but I think that my brain should have been taking in books and other other information and language and all sorts of and social cues and all sorts of stuff um but it, it wasn't able to access any of that so I just started playing games with myself of just like right in the next record I'm only listening to the toms and like just to keep myself occupied but yeah. then I realize now like I, I'll sit and teach people that and realize that they've never done that in their lives like they've come out with a master's in uh, in 
music production from wherever. And I'm like, right, we are just going to listen to snare sounds. And this is, you know, I'm going to put on all these various records and you are not allowed to to let your ears go to anything else other than the snare sound for these next five records. And they're just sat there going, I've never done this. I'm like, that's all I did. Yeah, Yeah, that's... um... It's really interesting. I, I do find that really interesting. I almost want to put a pin in that for a second because there's something I want to come back to about that. But bef- so from at what point did you decide that because you went to to um, Salford, was it you uh, was it Salford College or university? Or It was Salford Polytechnic. So you could go from 16. Uh, okay. They upgraded it to a university long after I left. <laughs> <laughs> so I can say I went to Salford University. I did not. I went to Salford Poly. <laughs> And at what, it, yeah. what point did you it's decide that, Yeah. When, when did you decide that you kind of wanted to do engineering or what, that was something that you wanted to sort of take really seriously? Probably whilst I was still in hospital when I was about eight or nine. I okay. literally wanted to walk out of the doors of that hospital and go and work at Trident. Oh, wow. I just, I that's all I wanted to do. And it wasn't until... Um, it wasn't until a few years ago that I found out that they definitely didn't take females. So I was so lucky because I hadn't really um, realised that I was a girl and that that might be an issue yeah. in that industry. Um, and Strawberry certainly hadn't had a problem. I I was replacing um, Julia Nagel um, and like they'd already had a female um, assistant engineer at Strawberry. So it wasn't you know, they didn't, that wasn't a problem. Um, so I was just, I was lucky. I landed on my feet and I, mm-hmm. I just didn't appreciate it until much later in life that, you know, I kind of thought, oh, I wish I'd been born in London. I wish I could have gone and got a job in Abbey Road or Trident, but they wouldn't have had me. Like, yeah. So I'm glad that I did get the chance. That's that's true. It's something I, I never really thought of. I mean, I, it's a, it's interesting. It wasn't something that I was going to um, that I was going to bring up, but you know, I'm, I'm a father to two girls, and as soon as I found you and and did you know found out everything about what you're doing, I thought this is incredible. You know, I I, I loathe the the fact that nearly everybody I've had on the podcast is male, and I want my <laughs> girls to to listen to this when they're older and and listen to you know this conversation and hopefully lots more conversations and and not even cross their mind that the fact that they're female would would have yeah. any influence on on anything that happens <laughs> yeah it wouldn't no, absolutely I mean, it, it did it didn't cross it didn't cross mine because I think probably because my dad was a mechanic and I've been raised in a in a kind of garage environment you know surrounded by males and I wasn't I wasn't bothered by that um and I just I just didn't see it. I didn't see the gender thing until much later in life. But um, nothing it didn't hold me back. But I think I was lucky. Um, yeah, yeah. So, I, you know, I, I, and often um, sort of over the last few years, people have, have tried to sort of prod me to sort of say, oh, did it hold you back? It, it, it didn't hold me back. The only thing that being a girl um, in this industry um has held held us back um is we're not as good at fighting for our credits mm-hmm. um you know we're not as loud we're not as we're not as, as loud in the control room at sort of going this is my idea I remember, there's a great quote um 
I think it's from Glyn Johns. I think it's in Selma, okay. where he says that the producer is the 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 loudest man in the room that keeps shouting his idea until <laughs> until everybody takes it on board. <laughs> and that I laughed when when I read that because I thought oh, that's why there's so many guys in the industry <laughs> then because girls just go, what about this? Okay, never mind. <laughs> and then and then think. It would have been a better record if you'd listened, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's that's a that is a really interesting point. Well, I better uh, I I need to get get my girl. Well, I, my girls are loud as it is. I don't think they'll have any problems <laughs> to, to saying their ideas. I get told what to do all the time, and uh, the eldest is only five, but I still get told what to do all the time. Um, what was um. I mean, I did a little bit of research into Bill Leader, and he seemed like he was really interesting in terms of what he was, his approach to to recording. I mean, what was your time at college like and learning from Bill? Um, it was it was really good. It, the recording side of it, because to make it an actual official um, uh, qualification, it was the course at that time because music production or, or engineering um was was seen as something that they hadn't passed it basically as, as a as a as a course yeah. so w- what it was was a level electronics a level acoustics and a level maths um and then you had optional units that you could go down in the studio and they were obviously what we were there for and they were the most important to us but you could actually not turn up and still absolutely pass because as long as you did those three things that you were there to do um, in the classroom kind of situation. Um, but yeah, it, the, the, those, that, that time they had a 16 track uh, tape machine um, and the, but, but a flat, a flat one on one inch. Um, and the, that time um, was really important that that kind of, that those, those first sort of, have a listen to you know teaching you to walk a drum kit teaching you to to not just think this is where you place a snare drum mic there isn't a place where you place a snare drum mic it depends on everything firstly the room secondly the drum thirdly the drummer fourthly the song you know but it all those factors there isn't a place um so just being taught that way which is the correct way um then I think was really, really beneficial. I didn't, again, I didn't realise what a legend he was at the time. <laughs> um, it, it, I, I think it's, the little bit I read was about him recording um, sort of uh, almost haphazardly with the Revox machine, sort of folky kind of records, which seems quite... In his kitchen, yeah. yeah. And you're, I mean, yeah. a lot of the stuff, I mean, I'm, I've been listening to James Yorkston for a, long, a lot of years and like it's very quite folky kind of, um, you know, influenced stuff. So it's almost quite... Uh, again it's sort of nice that you learnt from somebody who specialised in that kind of stuff and it's you've ended up mm-hmm. um, doing quite similar things yeah um, and I never intended to like I never intended to but it's just I think a combination of having had the, that initial teaching from the leader and my mother was an Irish musician um, okay. so I you know just I guess it's just something that I, I found easy to do. But it's kind of funny that 
the um, the way that I approach folk music, including James Yorkston when I heard with it, is with, is with this kind of like, I don't really like folk, so I'll just make hunky-dory if you don't mind. <laughs> I love it. So that's why it sounds the way it does. You know? yeah. <laughs> I love that. So there we have it, part one of my conversation with Julie McLannan. I uh, hope you enjoyed that and I hope you're taking lots of notes. Um, I do advise you to go and check out the uh, analogue recording film that was put together um, by Julie. We talk about it a bit more in the second episode. and um, We go and check out her website, Analog Catalogue or Julie McLannan. If you Google her, her website comes up or they'll be in the, uh, the show notes of this. Um, and you can watch that. It's about half an hour long, well, 25 minutes long, and it's a really beautiful, uh, beautifully shot and beautifully produced film um, about the process of analogue recording, and, and uh, it really sums up uh, Julie's attitude towards everything. Uh, so go and check that out now, um, and I'll also talk about it again in the second episode, which was coming next week. Um, that just leaves me to remind you that you can get in contact with me uh, at joe at allyouneedisdrums.com, and on that website, all you need is drums.com. You can find out about the isolated drum stems that I do. You can also buy a lovely enamel mug and help support this podcast. Um, wherever you are in the world, I will ship it to you for absolutely zero pennies. Uh, the mug costs pennies, um, but the shipping is completely free. I just want you to have a lovely mug. Um, so uh, that's it. That just leaves me to say a huge thank you to Joe Kane for the intro and outro music, to Adam Mallet for the artwork he supplies, and to Rory Hancock for uh, doing all of the legwork surrounding the podcast. And I thank you to you for listening. So I will be back next week with more from Julie McLennan. Goodbye. Goodbye.